It's a big, big business. We build physical data centers. We design them years in advance. We iterate on them. I'm going to call them in generations. And software often is around agility, right? You're going to build with agility. You want to iterate quickly, add to it on a regular basis so you get the features right. And your customers are expecting a rate of change because they want new features. They want new capabilities. But on the data center side, it's almost the opposite. Welcome to Altitude, the unsung heroes of cloud transformation, a podcast by Aviatrix. Today, more and more enterprises are moving their business up to the cloud as the race to innovate continues. In this multi-cloud world, IT leaders and teams find themselves behind the wheel where they are confronted with both new challenges and new opportunities. On Altitude, we explore the voices and stories of the people who are overcoming these challenges every day to drive their business to the next level. Be sure to subscribe on your preferred listening app and stay tuned for this episode. Hello and welcome everyone to another episode of Altitude. Of course, I am Woody Woodworth. And today with me, we have a very special guest and a great show for you. We have Zach Smith, who is the head of infrastructure at Equinix. Zach, welcome. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Woody. So of course, with someone like Zach, we're going to talk a lot today about cloud connectivity and the past, present, and future of, of Equinix and the uh, connectivity market in general. Before we get into that, of course, as is common on the show, I love to explore the history of my guests and their different personalities and talents and all the things that make them them. And Zach, like a lot of my previous guests, has a really cool eclectic background is kind of a kindred spirit to me insofar as he was a disciple of uh, classical music like myself. And Zach, you actually went to Juilliard and graduated there with a degree in performance. Uh, is that correct? Sure is. I started my first business when I was 12, uh, mowing lawns with my identical twin brother. Um, but that didn't seem like an excellent career path. So I thought, might as well be a starving classical musician. <laughs> I ended up dropping out of high school when I was uh, 17. My mom was very accommodating. And I said, oh, I'm going to go to New York. And I ended up at Juilliard in New York City in 19, I guess, 97, fall of 1997. And the instrument of choice for you was the double bass. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I played bass, um, which, you know, in and of itself probably speaks volumes about my approach to life. But uh, when I was in fourth grade, public school system. I grew up in um, Yorba Linda, California, a little town in Orange County. And they had public school music um, starting in fourth grade. And you could pick a string instrument in fourth grade, or you could wait until fifth grade to pick a wind instrument. And so I decided, of course, I had to pick a string instrument. Everybody signs up for the violin. And there was this guy, he's, I remember sitting in the commons. You remember you used to have commons, you did like crisscross applesauce and, you know, you'd have to be quiet and shush. Um, well, they came in and they played all the different instruments. And this guy, his name was Bruce Topping. He came in and he was like six foot seven and he was playing the, the bass. I think I was in the front row. And of course, to me, that just looked like a giant. And so, of course, I went home immediately and told my mom that I wanted to play the bass. I didn't know how we would get it around. Of course, I think she probably rolled her eyes because she ended up carrying the bass around for me for several years after that. But ended, I loved it. I stuck with it and, you know, played it through middle school, got some good breaks too. You know, as the only bass player to show up at several auditions, I naturally got the gig and that kind of gave me encouragement along the way. And uh, yeah, and eventually I went to Juilliard, had a great, you know, really amazing education. It was unique. We studied in a studio with a guy named David Walter. I think he was 84, 85 when I got there. And it was just me and a couple of students. And that's what we spend most of our time. Math classes at Juilliard aren't really a thing. 
they don't have them <laughs> um, or, or English classes or anything else. But, you know, I got there and I was just surrounded by exceptional people. Everybody was so top class at what they were doing. And it really showed me how kind of hard work and self-criticism and, you know, creativity combined together can create really amazing outcomes. So it was a great experience. Um, not the easiest uh, kind of college thing. Did a lot of gigging church gigs and working at all kinds of odd jobs to pay my rent. But uh, I ended up loving New York and have been here ever since. Yeah, that story resonates so well with me. Um, myself also being a musician in years past, not nearly as focused and, and perhaps talented and successful as you. I never went to Juilliard. I, I went to Appalachia State and got a degree in music education. But there we go. After I graduated from college, I decided to go try my hand at being a freelance musician and went from North Carolina to Portland and, and played drums in a punk rock band. And we were gigging out, you know, in around the area of Pacific Northwest and then also up and down the West Coast for like four or five years. And uh, I really resonate with that concept of just being super tenacious. You have to be. Yes. And a lot of self-criticism and being able to tolerate failure and learning from those failures in their constant regime of self-improvement. And I think that's why we do see a lot of creative types, musicians and artists and other folks from that walk of life in IT is because you need that ability to kind of become metacognitive. Totally agree. Yeah. I've, uh, I've gotten the pleasure of working with a lot of talented engineers where my, uh, my first question after I you know, kind of get to know them is, okay, so is it music or were you stage, stage hand or, you know, do you do woodworking? Which, which one of the crafts do you do right. that allows you to be so good at system administration? <laughs> yeah, it's cool. Tell me a little bit about how the growth of your career led from being, you know, a performance-oriented classical musician to now head of infrastructure at Equinix. I'm sure we don't have time to explore all the different paths uh, that, that you took, but if you could give us the short story, that would be cool. I would love to learn. Yeah. Well, I had always liked computers. You know, I always tinker with stuff. Um, my dad was very handy, um, is very handy. So I'd spend the weekends working, you know, fixing the, the plumbing or, or the sprinklers or things like that. And then I kind of took that to computers. My um, aunt had given us a IBM PC junior in the early eighties. And I kind of became the resident fixer of it, you know, clean the floppy drive and figure out which cables would go where and stuff like that. So I was kind of comfortable with computers growing up. I wasn't a computer nerd, um, but I was comfortable with them. And then when I was at Juilliard, I think it was my second year, I was working in the box office, handing out tickets for like $3.25 an hour. That was the student job that I was filling in the afternoons with. And some um, older lady came and she was talking, she was just chit-chatting with me. And I was always you know, fine talking with, my wife would always get angry with me and my girlfriend. She would say, why are you talking to strangers? I was like, well, we don't know each other yet. So how else would I get to know them? <laughs> so I was talking with this lady and, and she, she started telling me she had these problems with her computer. And I said, well, I can probably help you out, you know? And she says, well, why don't you come by and help me get, and she was trying to get AOL loaded up so she could email her granddaughter or something. I went and helped her out. And then afterwards she gave me a lunch and like $30. And I said, this is unbelievable. <laughs> and so I started helping her and some friends of hers on Fifth Avenue fix their computers. And so I got into computers a little bit more in college, actually kind of paid some of my way through by doing these kind of odd jobs. There was a few people who would spend time in computers. We had a computer lab at Juilliard. It was like five, six computers. And there was with a gentleman, his name is Miles Talon, 
And he was loading on Linux onto one of the computers. And I remember because he had like 20 Mandrake CDs splayed out in front of him and he was like slowly loading on. And so that was my first experience with open source. So after I graduated Juilliard, I was looking for a job. I was working a temp job at night um, at a bank. I figured, you know what? I'm not going to get hired at this place. I'm probably not going to make enough money to pay my rent as a musician. So why don't I start my own business? And I called a family friend. He had started a telecom business. The only person I knew had started a business. And I said, John, um, do you think I should start a telco? And he said, absolutely not. This is 2001. Um, but you should definitely start a business with recurring revenue. And he says, do you know of anything that you can get, you know, sell it once and get paid every month? And I said, well, you know, all my musician friends kind of need websites. So why don't I do web hosting for the musician friends? I and he says, will they pay you every month? And I said, I think so. And so I ended up getting a server and starting up doing web websites for musicians. Everybody needed a $20 homepage. And before you knew it, I have the gift of gab, or at least, you know, that was something I was okay at. You know, I'd sold a couple hundred accounts. And so I quit my job, my temp job, and I went up to Troy, New York to go visit this, this company that I rented the computer from. It turns out it was just a couple of guys who had gone to RPI, a tech college up in upstate New York, and were running this thing instead of going to class. And um, so we ended up becoming partners. And that, that became one of the first cloud computing businesses, a company called Voxel. My partner Raj uh, and I created kind of a Linux-based focused automated compute platform, um, which then later became cloud. And we sold that business in 2011. I loved it. I just loved how, you know, you could learn. It was an open community. It was very focused on open source and open technologies. You know, I just loved uh, kind of the, the, the pace and, and the always something new every day. And it, to me, it kind of made sense from a logical standpoint. And we stumbled through the business, um, ended up having an okay exit. And then in 2014, I, I started a company with my brother, uh, my lawn mowing partner. Um, we had always wanted to do a business together. We started a company called Packet, which had this vision that um, as software became more portable, that that was going to create an opportunity for developer-focused infrastructure in its most foundational form factor. And so we started Packet to automate computers and networks no matter what they were, no matter where they were, and no matter what you put on top of them. That was kind of the, the genesis. And that kind of aligned really nicely with the multi-cloud and cloud-native constructs that were gaining steam in 2014 and 15. And we grew that business. And, and eventually, in August, uh, I guess it was March of 2020, uh, we were acquired by Equinix. And Equinix is the world's largest operator of interconnected data centers. What's so unique about Equinix is... It's basically this giant platform that allows people to access ecosystems. One thing I learned um, when I was sitting with, uh, I think it was with PVC, who's our, our, our chairman, um, about Equinix is when Jay Adelson founded the company in 1998, Equinix stand for equality and neutrality in the internet exchange. And it was basically a place for things to come together, right? For networks and, and telcos, for you know, content and, and, and whatnot to come together in a neutral way and really form the foundation of the internet. But what Equinix was realizing was that as this had grown so big, over 10,000 customers, 3,000 networks, hundreds of thousands of interconnects, all the way from, let's say, you know, Melbourne to, you know, Silicon Valley, customers were looking for a lower friction, easier way, more automated way to access that global reach of Equinix. And so what Packet had built, which was a very fundamental kind of platform for bringing a high amount of automation to 
bare metal compute and fundamental layer two and layer three networking um, really aligned well with Equinix's vision of a fundamental neutral model to bring infrastructure capability on a global basis. And so that's where, where I've been ever since, been working on making that value of Equinix, which is that global reach and access to those ecosystems and networks um, easier, uh, more automated, simpler. That's what I lead today is our idea infrastructure services, um, where we're really you know proud to be charging ahead and making it just way easier for, for companies to press their advantage with digital. So based on what you've said, it sounds like Equinix already had kind of the company culture and company foresight and charter and mission with this global, equitable, kind of democratized model of connectivity to instantly mm -hmm. realize the value of cloud connectivity. Now, this may, may have been prior to your time joining the company, um, but certainly not prior to your time in the industry at all. Was it more, you think, at Equinix, like Field of Dreams motion where they saw this opportunity or you saw this opportunity and said, we're going to build this connectivity model and they're going to come because we sense the demand? Was it yeah. that you were listening to a lot of customer feedback and they were saying, I, I've got to connect to cloud, but I simply can't find a good way in. VPN is failing me. Internet is failing me. Or was it some mix of those things you think between the culture of the company and the voice of the customer? Well, if I can go back in time, kind of mid 2000s, I would say that the way Equinix would describe it is that we generally are creators of ecosystems. So the first ecosystem was the internet how to get AOL and AT&T to come together to interconnect their traffic. When we started, there was only one internet exchange, I think in the US, PAX, and you know, we helped build the modern peering ecosystem, allowed for networks you know, um, to have a neutral place to share traffic. And that really formed the basis of, of autonomous systems and whatnot. And then the next real big ecosystem was in financial services. So after September 11th, think Wall Street moving out of their kind of, you know, stock exchange buildings and saying, hey, electronic trading, how do we connect hundreds of bank participants in a neutral way? And so Equinix provided that, that platform and that way to have a neutral model for hundreds of participants to reach the same exchange in an equitable fashion. Um, and then the third, which is really where you're scratching at, was clouds. And we helped actually AWS create Direct Connect had the same problem, which is AWS was becoming more and more popular, started to be used by enterprises. This is probably 2009, something like that. The same need existed, which was enterprises and telecoms were saying, hey, I want to connect directly to my AWS infrastructure. But Amazon was like, hey, we're not really in a position for you to put all of your equipment in our AWS availability zone. But let's go ahead and do this over here at Equinix and create a product, Direct Connect, that would allow that to occur. Now that burgeoned into multi-cloud connectivity where interconnection and cloud on-ramps now is a, you know, we're a dominant provider throughout every region of the world of that because of our neutral model, right? Is we're right. just as easy to access AWS US East as you are to access OCI or Azure or Google or IBM or AT&T or the other 3000 clouds and networks that exist at our facilities. And so that model I think was relatively clear and it was effectively the foundation of our business model since 1998. What's different though, is the model, the access experience, right? Previously, our customers were builders of infrastructure. They were networking companies. They would come in and get their racks and put in their routers and run their cables and punch down their Cat5. And like they were practitioners of building physical networks and infrastructures. And we gave them the place and the tools to do that. 
But around that, that kind of cloud adoption, suddenly you had enterprises and startups and other people who were like, I'm actually not in the business of putting racks and fiber in the ground. That's not my business. <laughs> it might be Verizon's business, but it's not XYZ healthcare company's business. And so they started looking for a different access model. They say, hey, could you give me a programmatic way to create a connection between my thing and Amazon? <laughs> and that created Fabric, which is our programmatic interconnection platform, which allows you to do layer two and now layer three kind of connections in a virtual circuit manner. And that, that expanded pretty organically to saying, hey, I have my colo cabinet or my infrastructure, or my on-ramp in Chicago, but I need to reach AWS in US East. So instead of buying a circuit to go from here to there and here to there, could you just extend me from Chicago to Amazon, no matter where it was? And so then we took Fabric and made it everywhere and connected it all with a big, giant programmatic backbone, mm. which is the kind of superpower right now of Equinix is if you look at our 250 plus data centers, all of our regions are interconnected with specific direct transport between all of those Fabric locations that allows our customers to reach a network or an access point in one market, even if they're not in that market physically, right? And that, that kind of programmatic, I'm going to call it transport capability was really what like allowed enterprise customers and, and other service providers to, to kind of deal with the multi-cloud challenges that were starting to hit them. Now, that's only part of the problem. This is just the underlay. This is the picks and shovels that allows them to get there. And we were removing a lot of that infrastructure friction adding programmability, adding consumptive models, making it easier, going to CapEx Lite for them to do that. But still, you have to like build your network, right? Um, and so that's where we're excited about partnerships with companies like, like Aviatrix to, to build that intelligence and, and the capabilities on top of that. What's it like to turn the corner? Maybe since, you, you know, you divulged to me or we shared that, you know, you're company packet that you co-founded in 2014 really was all about automation. So you've been in the automation game really for, for quite some time. What is it like to try to transform infrastructure that is not based on, on automation, that's more your standard enterprise rack and stack cable power motion into this fine-tuned machine that you have in Equitix, which is really kind of approaching hyperscaler capability, right? Where you have a huge degree of automation, you have a fabric you can create an open marketplace of different networking and connectivity services and even, you know, different kind of marketplace consumption models on this fabric. Yeah. As head of infrastructure, was that straightforward at Equinix or did you notice that it took a lot of time to transform the company to be ready to embrace that kind of uh, motion? I mean, I would say that probably like all big successful companies were on a journey, right? I'd say coming from a, what I would say is a digitally native startup. There was nothing that we built at Packet that wasn't an API, full stop. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't have enough humans to do it any other way. <laughs> and B, we had a first principle design in 2014 that said, every single thing that we do as a business process is going to, whether it's checking on the status of an invoice or deploying a computer needs to have a programmable, our customer is software. And so we needed to have that as our interface. Now, that was a position of luxury because we had absolutely zero legacy, right? We were born in 2014. Mm -hmm. um, we had also zero revenue and zero customers. But, you know, Equitix is a long business, been, been working around since 1998, multiple 
iterations of its um, business, you know, kind of tooling technology stack, as well as changes in, in just expectations from end users and, and capabilities. So I would say we're on that journey. Um, and what's been fascinating to see is how we've been able to kind of take two, two very different objectives, right? Because in our data center, we're physical infrastructure in one side of our business, right? Which is, I think, publicly stated six or $7 billion business. It's a big, big business. And um, we build physical data centers. We design them years in advance. We, we, we iterate on them. I'm going to call them in generations, not in um, weeks. <laughs> they are meant to have lots of nines of availability. Mm. Um, so we're really more around process and control and quality. And software often is around agility, right? You're going to build with agility. You want to iterate quickly. You want to get your, you know, minimally viable and then add to it on a regular basis so you get the features right. And, and your customers are expecting a rate of change because they want new features. They want new capabilities. But on the data center side, it's almost the opposite. So culturally, we've had a deal. I always say one of the most interesting things is the concept of risk, right? And so one of the things that I've really tried to do over my tenure here has been to institutionalize the positive side of a blameless culture, um, which is to say, instead of looking how to remove risk, which is frankly, a lot of what we do within our data center business, because we want to, we're supporting, you know, a hundred megawatts of power in a thing like that could kill you if you do it wrong. Right. So we take a lot of care to maintain our people and our, our infrastructure and our assets and our things in ways that really reduces risk as much as we can. Now, on the other side, we want to manage risk. We want to have it. In fact, we need risk so we can take chances so that engineers or software teams or product managers can think outside the box and say, well, what if? We'll just try that. But that's not something we can always do in all parts of our business. So I think that's been one of my, my great challenges is trying to figure out how culturally we can allow kind of risk and agility to be part of one side of our persona and on the other side, you know, appreciate and understand the agency we have around, um, I'm going to call more critical infrastructure aspects of our business. It's a dichotomy. And instead of trying to ignore it, we've tried to embrace it. <laughs> and that has allowed us, I think at this point, to really appreciate and respect and honor the places where we need to move slow and, and like measure five times <laughs> and then cut. And the places where we should just cut faster and move along and fix it when it's broken, right? Um, and so that's been a, like a cultural shift that I think we're still in a journey of, but it's fascinating. And we're starting to really see the fruits of that. I mean, with our digital platform, you know, we, we know what customers want, even our own internal users. We're 13,000 um, employees here at Equinix. Um, we have 10,000, 11,000 customers across the globe. I mean, automation is a, is a hard stop requirement throughout vast majority of our business, right? And so I think now we're starting to see that flywheel of areas where we've started to create um, you know, significant advantages with our software and tooling and, and platforms that are starting to become, you know, really a part of our overarching business and culture. And, and that's really exciting to see. Customers love it. We love the outcomes and that allows us to move faster with delivering value to our end users. So, yeah, I love your description about automation requiring a change in culture to embrace a certain amount of calculated risk, intelligent risk. Um, you do have to embrace it to a certain degree, but then you also have to know in what areas of your infrastructure you're willing to tolerate risk, to your point, and what areas you, you simply aren't, because certain things have to be multiple, multiple nines. And that division of labor between underlay, overlay, hardware, software, in terms of, of risk. Do you think that the culture of the telcos and their risk-adverse 
heritage. You know, they're building phone lines, they're building last mile, they're building telecommunications infrastructure that is supposed to be super reliable, that their aversion to risk is why they kind of missed this market and why Equinix has really risen to being, you know, frankly, the the 800 pound gorilla of global connectivity, right? I mean, you guys are the world leader. And it could have been, say, I'm just going to throw names out. I'm not trying to pick on anyone. It could have been an AT&T. It could have been a Sprint. It could have been a Verizon. Because in some ways, you could think they had a lot going for them. And they still do. Of course, they're, they're big, vibrant, successful companies. But they just didn't nail the cloud connectivity thing right. together. They, I mean, they, they own, of course, a tremendous amount of, of global fiber and, and last mile and now getting into 5G. So, but in this aspect, right? So I think, was it t- around 2012 or so, right? You ended up, Equinix bought a lot of Verizon's data center hosting infrastructure. So back to the original question, is it about risk? Or was there some other reason why the telcos kind of missed the ball here? Or did they want to yield this space? Did they just say, this isn't for us? We've had a successful track record of working really closely with carrier partners. Uh, they're some of our biggest partners, um, which is great. Part of our connectivity ecosystem As you mentioned, uh, we've been a very acquisitive company and acquired significant assets from telecom companies, Verizon, Bell Canada, et cetera, et cetera. I would say a couple of things. Number one, it's our business model, right? The business model of Equinix is all about creating a bigger tent. Like we want to allow more things to happen. More ecosystem is good for us. And we do that by creating a level playing field. And that really sometimes can be what I'm going to feel uncomfortable, right? Letting pure competitors into our data centers to build their business, right? We know that an ecosystem model makes sense for us and our customers long-term. It's better for our world. It's better for our business. That is not always comfortable, um, but our model of allowing ecosystems to burgeon and having a trusted, I think the reason why we've been successful on it is that you know, for 25 years, Equinix has been committed to an open ecosystem, like full stop, right? And that's not kind of like, oh, when it's convenient for us, right? Um, and I think that really allows the trust to build with our counterparties and for them to build long-term investments in being at Equinix and building on Equinix, okay? So I think that that's part of it, um, which our business model, and that's very different for maybe say a nationalized telecom, which has a captive kind of boundary to where its stuff is and it needs to monetize those things. It doesn't always get to go into every country to dig phone lines, right? Maybe it's only allowed to do that in a certain region or whatnot. And I would say the other thing really has to do with product cycles. And this is something that I've learned um, a lot in my last business at Packet. SoftBank was a major investor. I learned so much working around with Sprint, with SoftBank. What I learned is that from a product standpoint, I'm a pretty product focused person. Carriers really think in, in long-term, you know, I had a, a good friend of mine, I'm going to give you an analogy here. A good friend of mine said the carriers will all see effectively everything as an iPhone. The most common use case of the world is a smartphone. Everything looks like that. They're managing for a mass market cost optimized way to deliver one use cases. Our customers primarily in the cloud or in internet infrastructure are enterprise customers. They look very, very different from each other. They have very, very different needs. They're all in very different cycles. So that's one lens is the whole kind of like, hey, I've built this big consumer product where I have 300 million iPhones and I'm also going to do some business services on the side by repackaging it a little bit. We are 100% focused on service providers and enterprises and how we can help them be more successful, which often means customizing or providing capabilities that are pretty unique just to that one customer or just to one of that one segment. 
So I think that's one that is just how you view the customer and what you're tooled for. The other one is just product cycles, which is when you're thinking about a carrier product, right? You're generally thinking MTLS or 4G, right? The, actually, it's a standard. It's an interoperable standard that everybody agrees upon and then tries to keep going as long as possible. And that's super different in the world of technology, right? Where there's tons of innovation happening all the time. And we do see open standards and open software around things, protocols, et cetera. But the innovation happens in so many different ways that your products are not the same. There's, if you, could you imagine buying from a cloud company and having the same product set for 20 years? Mm -hmm. Like, mm. it wouldn't happen. It couldn't happen, right? Because developers and enterprises, their needs are going to change all the time. They want to move way faster. They want to change it. They want to adjust. They need more services. It's almost the opposite in a carrier land where they're like, I'm going to support, I mean, MPLS has been in the market for how long? So then it was hard to reconsider you know, differentiated value that would be in a different spot or that might. So I think that's the other thing is just product cycles. So different. One is really about standards and scaling that standard, uh, prosopizing, like figuring out how to roll it out everywhere, look the same. The other mm. one is about how to innovate and create unique differentiated value for your customers. And so I think that's the other reason why Equinix was able to think about that. Hey, neutral model, bring all the right partners, allow it to be the place and then innovate where you need to. Like, huh, I guess we should make API accessible layer two connectivity between everything. That seems like a real need. We should do that. And we didn't spend nine years in three GPPP meetings or whatever they call them to figure out if everybody wanted to do that together. We said, that's something that the market says needs to happen and we're going to make it happen. And sure enough, you know, that I think, you know, helped to cause a lot of our capability set in the market. Do you find that interest with enterprise towards hypervised platforms, fabric-based platforms, is really heating up and resonating? Or are you finding that there's a specific kind of customer that wants to embrace that kind of platform versus another kind of customer that's like, you know, you can have my Nexus switch when you pry it from my cold dead hands. Or is it, <laughs> is it, uh, is everyone basically gotten a memo and it's more like people are moving as a herd? Really, if you're not moving to a virtualized, offering and and a market-based economy for even your connectivity model, you know, you're going to be left out in the cold. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I think, you know, certain kind of what I'm going to call highly scaled businesses have very, very, very specific requirements, right? And I do believe I'm a big believer in the right tool for the job and workload has become more portable. Um, software has made it that way. You can move workload and virtualize it and put it in a different platform so that it will kind of end up where it is, quote unquote, best suited. Um, so I'm not at all against like the big iron. I think, you know, think about things like machine learning as having a renaissance, as it mm. were, in like specialty hardware. However, I think the non-negotiable at this point is automation. And if you were to go into any enterprise company and say like, I want to automate less, you're going to get laughed out, right? Like you're, everybody wants to automate more. They need to. Efficiency reasons, scale, security, Automation is like a first principle in almost every customer meeting I have, right? The question then begets, do you have the capability set internally to automate all of your big iron to the degree necessary for your constituents? And your constituents are increasingly opinionated. They got lots of demands. They want to move fast. They want to use Terraform. They want to tear it all up and down. They want to use CI pipelines. They want to build their network in their lab on their laptop. 
and then deploy it into production across 10, 17 zones, right? They got things to do. And so that's a big question that I think a lot of companies are asking themselves is, okay, am I really able to provide that level of capability by kind of handcrafting my infrastructure from the ground up? Or do I pick a layer of abstraction that allows me to move faster, that allows me to meet my internal constituents' needs? And I think increasingly, you know, whether it's economy or just market dynamics or, you know, frankly, the movement of networking from a pure infrastructure kind of back office function almost into part of the application lifecycle, right? It is moving at the speed of software. And that is causing that bar to raise in terms of the requirements for what it means to have a network, for what it means to deal with your infrastructure. And I think that's kind of whether, you know, by hook or crook, most companies are saying, hey, give me some relief and put me in an abstraction layer. Like, I don't want to talk about your offering unless it comes with an API, <laughs> which I think is a pretty reasonable expectation these days. Yeah. I mean, I think you've said some really important revealing things about the switch from networking as a foundational infrastructure principle to an agile automated principle that people are just now starting to grok. At least maybe IT leaders and, and professionals in, in networking that, been in cloud for just long enough to realize the fundamental differences between building a network that's meant to be built again versus a network that's meant to be really built once, right? So the traditional data center approach is you build this very stable, very perpetual infrastructure that can accommodate a huge amount of growth and, and new workloads without fundamentally having to change the architecture, right? You might add blades, you might make a replica of it in some other place at some point, but fundamentally it's this perpetual monolithic thing. And then you go into cloud or other agile systems and you quickly realize that networks are not at all perpetual, especially if they need to be automated. And in fact, it's the application that should dictate what the network looks like, right? That's what the shift left is all about, which is when I build my application, I really want to let the application tell the underlying you know, control plane or, or, or CICD pipeline, what my network requirements are and have some network be built around those requirements. It could be a latency horizon. It could be ports and protocols. It could be a specific security profile that that application needs a specific connectivity yeah. model that that application needs. I see that mistake now being rectified, but it's not perfect. It's just now beginning. So I think in the next five years, we're going to see this huge explosion of CICD pipeline tools and ecosystems that allow more of a net DevOps and a DevSecOps motion to just to come together, right? Every application is going to have its proclivity of what kind of networking infrastructure it needs, and it's all going to be pipelined. Although you said the net, the net DevOps and the Sec DevOps or whatever, and you said Dev in all of those. So yes. I'm pretty sure that yeah. that's the common thing, which is give me, give me programmability. Um, it is no longer static. I think that's a great way to put it, Woody, which is that you know, the concept of static infrastructure at all is, um, I think, really a misnomer and, and people are moving way past that. And, you know, that, that requires a cultural shift that requires, you know, kind of capabilities and kind of almost people shifts in a lot of ways or new skills, but it's super powerful. I saw a recent customer demo of uh, Aviatrix and Equinix and Amazon together, and it was fascinating how, you know, a developer with not that much like a couple of hours of scripting um, using Terraform was able to deploy 
and redeploy and test and deploy again, you know, a full multi-cloud network, which would have taken months, right? Months. <laughs> and this is right. done in like a few hours. And then it actually now only takes about 15 minutes and you can repeat it exactly the same way. Idempotent control, create from the ground up. Man, is that a powerful thing with a network instead of debugging, did I miss up that MTU on that thing when I somebody toggled the switch thing seven years ago? And so I think it's a powerful shift, but I, it, it will take some time. There's another one in there that I'd love to just push on. And this may not be coming up in every conversation at a network level. It's definitely coming up in an infrastructure level. Compute storage and related um, is sustainability. And that's another reason why people are moving to a virtualized option. They need to be more efficient. They need to utilize the asset all the time. The biggest carbon impact of an asset is building the asset usually. Mm -hmm. And so being more efficient, looking at it, measuring what you're using, understanding what's in use or not, and then oftentimes working with partners to multi-tenant that, right? And that's one of the powerful things about the fabric, for example, is we can get so dense. We can really help customers use exactly what they need instead of, well, I've had to provision, you know, a 10 gig circuit. So I ordered two racks and a bunch of routers and did all these things so I could put two 10 gig ports on it. That is a model that is just too wasteful from a from a energy perspective and a cost perspective. And so we're seeing a big focus now on sustainability, carbon impact, total ownership, optimization. How can I reduce the footprint? And then how can I move to a more aligned and operated model for, for efficiency, I think is is a pretty big trend. And, and it's it's awesome to see, but it's a lot of work. And I think that's just yet another thing that's driving towards virtualization or consumptive-based models for infrastructure, including networking. Well, Zach, it's been super amazing and enlightening to talk with you. As always, I've learned so much. Thank you for your time and your contribution to uh, helping our listeners really understand what's happening with Equinix and the world at large with global connectivity. It's been a true pleasure. So thanks for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's been super fun. Thanks, Woody. Thank you. Take care.